This is an ABC podcast. Philosopher Umberto Eco once remarked that to survive, you must tell stories. And on Soul Search today, a master storyteller with an epic story of faith and resilience. I'm Meredith Lake, and I've been waiting half the year for this, a chance to hear the acclaimed historian and author Simon Sharma. He's the University Professor of Art History and History at Columbia University in the USA. And he's written award-winning books on a whole range of topics, from Dutch painting to the history of Britain. I remember, as an undergrad, reading Landscape and Memory, which gripped me with the beautiful possibilities for writing cultural history. Well, in more recent years, Sharma has turned his attention to the cultural history of religion and specifically to the story of the Jews over the last three millennia. A community at home in the word, as he says, rather than in, say, a monument or building. A people for whom story itself becomes a kind of hero. Well, in telling the story of the Jews, Sharma has produced two books already, Finding the Words and, most recently, Belonging. He was in Australia in May for the Sydney Writers' Festival, where he spoke with New York literary scholar Paul Holdengraber. My name is Paul Holdengraber, and it is a great, great pleasure and an honour for me to speak with Simon Sharma today. Now, I want to begin with a little quotation mm-hmm. um, from the expulsion from Spain of the Jewish population in 1492. You quote a priest, mm-hmm. Andres Bernaldez, mm-hmm. on the mass exodus, and this is what he says. They went along the roads and over the fields in much travail and misfortune, some falling, others standing up, some dying, others being born, others still falling sick, and there was not a Christian who did not feel sorrow (coughs) for them, and whenever they went, they, the Christians beseeched them to be baptized and some in their misery would convert and remain, but few, very few, did so. And the rabbis continually gave them strength and bade the women and girls sing and play tambourines and timbrels to raise the people's spirits. Now, there's something, I think, essential about this story as it's being told that seems to have captured your imagination, something nearly, one might say, cinematic about it, and something really uh, poignant about that story. And I'd like you to perhaps contextualize (coughs) and tell us why. Well, I I think actually a lot of Jewish history, but particularly the the Jewish history that I describe in volume two, which the shadow of the expulsion in 1492 falls long across the centuries which follow, You might call it the heroism of the displaced, and um, it is a startling and powerful moment when the heroism of how you conduct yourself obstinately, all that obstinacy that the church complained about, suddenly strikes those who are doing the intimidation as intrinsically, almost inconceivably noble, or, or in some cases, inconceivably obtuse. You know, why not spare yourself? Of course, what is implied in that passage 
um, or what follows from that passage is that precisely that section of Jews who did actually accept the church's offer and become conversos, new Christians, were the particular target of the Inquisition with which volume two, volume two opens. If you, we think that approximately by the beginning of the um, 15th century, there were 300,000 Jews in Spain, and Jews have been in Spain before, long before Spain had become Christian, of course. You know, pre-Visigothic Spain, there have been Jewish centers. Of that 300,000, 100,000 were probably killed during the course of the massacres and riots, um, engineered, really, um, by the Franciscans and the Dominicans in the century before 1492, 100,000, approximately a third of the population, remained defiantly Jewish, and the other third were precisely the third that accepted more or less enforced conversion and led one of, one of the great themes of Volume 2, this extraordinary kind of double life, and um, there are various ways in which the heroism of the displaced, which after all, everybody out there, I think you'll, you'll understand, you know, um, compassion, it's one of the great horrors and uh, intense perplexities of our own time. You know, you've all seen, you've, Paul, you've all seen those helicopter shots of the Rohingya, you know, on their way to a, a temporary refuge in Bangladesh. Um, caravans of people, it's impossible to actually be a Jewish historian and not to actually feel an intense identification with those caravans of the destitute and the powerless actually pressing up against the frontier of the powerful. Would, would you say you're a Jewish historian? Um, I'm more of a Jewish historian, possibly, than a historian of the Jews, yes, even. I'm, bit of, I'm both, but yeah, that, that's for sure. And I'm not Jewish in the way in which Jonathan Miller coined that fam famous joke, actually. What is a um, joke? I knew he would get some jokes, but what, what is a joke? Uh, yeah, well, if yeah. You don't start me off, no. actually, or we'll... <laughs> um, no, jo Jonathan uh, Miller was asked if he was Jewish, and he said, yes, Jew-ish, you know, <laughs> and, um, yeah. Yeah, there's no, no one's ever accused me of particular ishiness, I think, in this particular case. I was going on to say, though, that um, Volume 2, Belonging, actually begins with an extraordinary story, which has only really been discovered in the last 20, 30 years from the Inquisition archives, um, of conversos, those so-called Moranos, which is a, an offensive term, um, those Jews who pretended to, or ostensibly were baptized their children, were married in church, in grand churches in Spain and Portugal, and particularly in Antwerp, but were obs observant Jews in secret. We now know there was kind of an underground railroad, really, conveying uh, new Christians who wanted to revert to Judaism in the one place where they probably could, which was Ottoman Turkey, which you know, was much more welcoming to different kinds of profession. What was truly extraordinary was that this, this sort of underground railway began in Portugal and the Tagus River, went to London where there was an underground Jewish community. Shakespeare may indeed have known them, yeah. yeah. And to Antwerp, and it was funded by the most powerful and wealthiest new Christians, Amandes' family 
in Antwerp, and uh, it was a journey which took you up the Rhine, in other words, going south, then over the Alps under great ordeals and privations, and down into the Lombardy Plain, where you, there were specific police patrols waiting to extort the few gems you might have tried to secrete. And then you made it to a halfway house, to the three places, four if you include Ancona, but Ancona became a place occupied by the Inquisition, essentially to Ferrara, Mantua, and of course Venice, which then, if you're lucky, and at the right time, you shipped on to Turkey. So this sort of sense of a suitcase culture, being endlessly on the move, having a kind of provisional sense of belonging, is absolutely part, you know, it's not, it's not an aberration. If you're, if you're a historian of the Jews or a Jewish historian, it's not that most cultures live naturally and unequivocally in a native home. Um, for, you know, if you have a sort of mindset about the enormous archive of the centuries of Jewish life, it's natural to be cosmopolitan. Whether you're living in 12th century Cairo, the Ganitsa, and sending your nephew up to the Coromandel coast in India or to the other end, to the, to the Maghreb coast facing the Atlantic, I, I the natural to, thing is to be on the move. I, I want to, you to unpack that beautiful sentence a little more, provisional sense of belonging. Well, the, at the heart of it, and it's a, it's a perilous thing, of course, the, the non-provisional part um, is um, observance and study and the Hebrew language is the annual the round an the anchor. Of, the, of the high holy days and uh, immersion in the Torah. Um, if you're more sophisticated or more committed, immersion in the, in the Talmud and so on. That's the, that's the non-provisional part of it. Right. That actually is your home, in some sense the Torah is your home. Um, you Nidre on the eve of the Day of Torah, and you, you can, are And you home. can carry it. Yes, you can carry it. Well, the Jews invent in Volume 1 called Finding the Words. Um, they're not, they're, their religious allegiance is not conditional on a monument or on, on a stone inscription for all the kind of pomposity of the temple. And it always strikes me actually in the Bible, in the Tanakh, um, <laughs> that uh, the, 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 the elaborate description of interior decoration is of, the, is of the sanctuary in the desert, which is itself a kind of portable temple. The, the description of the, t of the temple, of Solomon's temple, is weirdly vague. I mean, you know, Hiram, cedars, a lot of kind of timber schlepping and all the rest of it. But it's only when you get to Josephus, who's doing it out of memory and exile, that you get the full interior decoration <laughs> summary. So in some sense, actually, what it depends on is the word. The word is portable. The word is on parchment, or the word is on vellum, or the word becomes in this, in this period in paper and print. So you know you're going to have to take it with you. So then the issue arises, what is your status as someone who knows the home is in the word rather than in a monument or a building? What is your status in the neighborhood with your hosts? And the issue is really, um, how can that come to be unproblematic as it was for my family, my father, you know, for whom Shul was, was Saturday, and Sunday was Dickens, re read out loud to our family, as it was. Which, which and that was unproblematic.
On RN, you're listening to Soul Search, and that's historian Simon Sharma speaking at the Sydney Writers' Festival earlier this year about his new book on the Jews called Belonging. He's in conversation with Paul Holdengraber, a literary scholar, who asked Simon Sharma about his own sense of belonging. Home for me is Virgin Atlantic Airlines. No, that's a joke. (laughs) Now Virgin Australia. Um, Because, you know, people ask me, what's my mother tongue? And I tell them I have several father tongues. I mean, I don't, you know, my my parents were Viennese. They left Vienna just in time. And the very last day you could leave Vienna Mm. and went and uh, lived in Haiti, where there were 107 Jewish Mm. families. He became a farmer in Haiti and delivered Mm. the remains of the day to the Jewish population there and met my mother, who was 16. They got married when she was 19. They were married for 71 years. We grew up (coughs) speaking four languages. Mm. My mother rebelled against the German language and began speaking it with a French accent. We had four, we had four, differ- four different languages. I remember right. my father being called into a school in Belgium and the principal said, you know, your son is confused. He doesn't have a mother tongue. My father said, what, what, what's the problem? He said, he's my son. Of course he's confused. I mean, that, that, was, a, that, that, right. that was a kind of... So I grew right. up, you know, I don't... We, we, I don't had, we had, again, yeah. in, in the same sense... Um, 1953, which won't have been an event for you, but it was for me, so it was the coronation of Her Majesty the Queen. And, um, <laughs> and she came to Australia, of course. And actually, in school, in primary school, um, there, we had little British flags um, that followed the progress of the royal couple around the, around the Commonwealth, um, how it, which, which provoked my mother and father to um, have... Um, their own flag on the wall of the lounge, as we called it, with the distribution of Sharmas and Steinbergs across the globe from, uh, from Valparaiso um, to Harbin, my great aunt Jean, right across America, Dayton, Cincinnati, St. Louis, Portland, Oregon, um, a few European cities where there were Steinbergs left and, and did they bring so. You, did they bring you to the map to discuss Yes, it? exactly. No, they absolutely did. We were waiting. I had no idea where Harbin was, I had no idea what Manchuria was, so but we were waiting for do you think, great Do you think this viewing had an influence on your choice of profession? Could have done. It's because, an interesting because I, mean, it's I just go around I, I go around, you know, there are two kinds of tastes in self-invention when you become a historian. One is is much more reflexive. You want to essentially do, the, if not the genealogy, you can tell I, I'm not keen on that kind of thing. You want to simply discover the origins of how you came to be you, either collectively or individually. But my, you know, when I started work on Dutch history, for example, or on French history, a bit like you, yeah. my sense was actually it's in the most challenging and um, you know, powerful commitment you could make was sort of living inside the life of those separated from you in time and place. So there was a kind of, without being um, sort of pretentious about it, there was a kind of germ of pluralism embedded from the time of Herodotus. Herodotus is at least as interested in the Persians and indeed in the Egyptians and their weird rites of 
everything from ablutions to funerals, as he is in... Um, yes, you feel actually Herodotus is sick of Athenians telling him how wonderful they are. He came from the Ionian Islands, which itself, in the middle of you know, the Aegean, had a peculiar and complicated and very porous kind of identity. So the Herodotian idea always seemed to me appealing, more gossipy, more heterogeneous, Valparaiso and Harbin. That's why there's a chapter on China. Which I want you to read, but before you do it, you know, I was asking you the question of the map. I know that, you know, the Mitteleuropa parents that I had, my father in particular, you know, when I was 17 years old and went off to university, he sat me down and said, Paulie, I want you to know that the word university comes from universe. Mm. The more interests you have, the more interesting you yeah. are. Um, he, and he was a medical, he, had, he wanted to become a medical doctor. And it's a story I like to tell because it, it really, really uh, influenced my way of seeing. He said, you know, you're studying philosophy, in his mind somewhat useless, but all, it's all right, because it was also part of Bildung, and okay, you're going to look within the soul of, of people, that's great, but cross the street. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by cross the street mm-hmm. was, in Vienna, the medical school was across from the law school, across right. from the philosophy school. He said, you're going to study Plato and Aristotle, and all of that is great. I mean, a bit highfalutin, but f- great. But cross the street and see how they cut mm. up a body. And I think that way of being educated mm. is hugely, yeah. it has a huge impact. There are yeah. things, there are things that, um, uh, you know, and our parents' generation did. My, my mother, who was born in 1911, um, was made by her father and mother to flee from London during a, a really raging scarlet fever epidemic. But her little suitcase experience, and she did indeed have a little suitcase and a baggage, she was nine um, everybody who is out there who are kind of frantic if your 12-year-old doesn't call you up on your smartphone. Um, my grandparents sent um, their little daughter, Trudy, across Europe to Vienna, and they strung out various relatives or pseudo-uncles and aunties to make sure at various points from Calais to Paris. To <laughs> and it's so amazing, she got her no? yeah. So she ended up in Vienna. The, 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 the wonderful irony was the only place where she missed her train was at Passau, um, very much on the you know, frontier between, um, between Austria, so they become shrunken down, and, and Weimar, Germany. And she was sort of standing on a platform there crying, and, and, um, and she was taken in by um, you know, the station master who phoned up the burgomaster and so on. And my mother thereafter, after the Holocaust, really, to put it mildly, wanted to have nothing to do with anybody. She said, no, it's all, it's all impossible. I don't want to know anything about them. But in Passau, they're really... And I, I could never tell her Passau was one of the most feverishly Nazi towns, actually, in <laughs> Third Reich, as it became. But she made it to Vienna and, and, and back again at the age of nine. Read that passage, because in a way, it's, you, you might well, want to... Well, the passage about home. Yes. Okay, no, well, the other side of... Yeah. You know, the other side of the story, um, I was, that I I was saying to, yes, I was saying to Paul, to, to the Balnaldo story of uh, people watching the Jewish experience and in spite of themselves being displaced, despite of themselves feeling moved at the heroism, uh, the heroism of the obstinacy of what they were observing, um, were moments in Jewish history where the host society, even in a city like Odessa, which was a a lot more 
cosmopolitan, they're not more welcoming to different kinds, and where Jews indeed, uh, who wanted to escape from the narrow world of the yeshiva and the Jewish seminary, could come and have their education in Russian and do science and maths, and young Jewish women actually had a proper education. Even in a place like that, there would be a pogrom. And, um, and there were plenty of pogroms in Odessa and Kiev and Elizavetograd and so on. And what struck me as very interesting is what actually the first targets of a pogrom were. And actually, Shalom Aleichem in, uh, got that right, one of the, even though he wrote what became in Anatevka and Fiddler on the Roof, mostly looking at tramcars in New York when he did that, which doesn't mean to say that his memory betrayed him. An out-of-towner coming into a pogrom-struck city, Kiev, Elizavetgrad, or Odessa, would have been met by a snowfall of feathers lying on the streets, blown into the water, hovering on the marine gusts. The insides of what have been ripped apart, pillows, bolsters, cushions, the comforters of the Jews. The first target of their assailants who stabbed and tore and hacked at them before moving on to the hard furniture, the glass, the crockery, and then on to the householders themselves caught at home or running for their lives. Then your nostrils <coughs> would pick up the stink of burnt out houses, the wooden shacks of the poorest, the easiest to set alight. So what with the feathers and the scorch, the town smelled like singed, plucked goose. But it was the Jews who'd felt the butchery just round the corner while children away from their hand-wringing elders ran around picking bits and pieces from the debris. And it's the sort of sense it's in which yeah. actually symbolically, ritually, you attack the upholstery. You sort of, you were making a statement about the denial of home comforts, even before you actually were beating up any old or young Jews you found in the streets. I thought, you know, it was the profoundly to be the other side of the story. You're only, uh, you're only allowed to be comfortably at home very, very provisionally, even in Odessa. Simon Sharma, the award-winning author of The Story of the Jews, speaking with Paul Holdengraber at the Sydney Writers' Festival. I'm Meredith Lake, and their discussion reminded me of some other conversations we've had on Soul Search in recent weeks about how some stories are weaponised, used to manipulate and oppress, and other stories are told in a way that we might describe as truthful, even sacred, well, for Simon Sharma, as we heard, Herodotus modelled a kind of storytelling that's open and curious, that pursues plural interests, and he's got more to say about that a bit later on in the conversation. For now, though, what's the distinction between story and history? So, story rather than history for the first volume, why? Oh, I, well, for the, for the whole yeah. project, and there's a, another volume to yeah. come, which... Um, which we'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, which will inevitably be a very hard thing to do. Well, I want to talk about reasons. that in a yeah, second. Yeah, we, we will. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But story, because um, I, not quite an act. I suppose it could be thought to be an act of, you know, intellectual cowardice in a way, but I, but I think it was... Uh, I, it, you know, I didn't want to... Um, 
I, I didn't want to present what I was doing actually as a comprehensive history. I mean, it doesn't, anybody who picks up these books will indeed find an account of um, the way the religion, for example, became first encoded in the Mishnah, after the, which is the core of the Talmud, written, by the way, in a very beautiful, rather anachronistically beautiful classical Hebrew, not as the vast bulk of the Talmud is written in Aramaic. Um, so I didn't, uh, uh, there is an account of the Hasidism as uh, the Jewish kind, there were other kinds of 18th century kind of romantic mysticism. So you've, you can find a history of religion of, of a sort, but of a very abbreviated sort in the work. I, the, the story of the Jews was called that, and I, and I, you know, I did feel you, guilty. Did you wrestle with it? No, no, I knew I wanted to call that, Paul, because actually, you know, as I said, volume one is called Finding the Words. Yeah. I was very struck by the fact that the, um, the construction of narrative, uh, the construction of the Bible for the most part is happening pretty much at the same time as Homer is writing the Iliad and the Odyssey, around 8th, 7th century or so BCE. And the sense actually in which you can kind of shape an allegiance through not just a set of commands, um, uh, insistence story. that you prostrate yourself in front of the god emperor, you know, in the Akkadian or Assyrian or... Um, you know, that, that kind of tradition, um, but actually that you have a, an, a true narrative full of extremely mortal, arguing characters who shake their fists at gods very much, again, the way, you know, the Homeric story unfolds. So I wanted, I wanted the, the story to be the hero rather than, you know, which is why volume one does not begin with, I don't know, Abraham plodding out from Ur, Backlit. I actually had a rule when we made the television series. So this will be a series with no backlit camels whatsoever. And I was, <laughs> I was, I was, I was as good as my word, <laughs> because that story was certainly not the first story that the Jews were telling. Genesis was, you know, was written somewhat later, probably in the fifth century BCE. So I wanted actually, how is it you come to a language which is elastic and purposeful and multi-purpose really for building building this body of extraordinarily heterogeneous stories, many of which in a kind of, you know, modernist sort of dream argue with themselves. I mean, there are two contradictory accounts of the creation in Genesis, not one. Quite different, really, and, from, and plucked from quite different kinds of storytelling, you know, uh, archaic sources as well. So that's really why. In volume two, the story, again, I feel, you know, even less defensive, I suppose, because it coincides with the arrival of print. And for the first time, Jews can tell stories about themselves, about their own lives, in vernacular languages. And um, so the, the, actually the, the difference, uh, and in fact the first great poetic, very heavily poeticized story I deal with in a book is written in Portuguese, um, not in Ladino, not in, not in Judeo-Spanish. Um, um, but in Portuguese by Samuel Ushque, um, called the Consolação, the Consolation for the Tribulations of Israel. And it is that account of actually that extraordinary journey undercover over the Alps and so on, but done in this very fantastical, almost sort of surrealist style. So again, the storytelling changes from the beginning of the kind of wild messianic stories to Herzl's version. You know, Herzl is a lawyer turned playwright, really. So he's very much in the narrative business, even before he writes, writes 
Judenstadt and, and Altneuland. I was, I was thinking about Echo's line that to survive you must tell stories. Yes. Is, is that, um, and I was thinking that maybe um, hi if it had been history, it would have been an entirely different book. Yeah, it yes, yes, I think probably, probably so. I mean, I think actually that again, so you made one, a choice one that, that will, yeah, one of the themes of the book is how to make the story of the Jews, the story of everybody. <laughs> um, on the one hand, you don't want to dilute the particularism <coughs> of the experience you've gone through, good or bad. But on the other hand, you know, I, I, whether I was doing it on television or whether I was writing these two volumes, um, very much in the way in which that amazing moment where Bernardes, you know, yeah, yeah. describes the women playing the tambourine and so on. So, yeah, so the it. Jewish story has sort of jumped yeah. from the persecutor to the persecutor. So that's really, that is, that is the struggle we're having with Holocaust education now, not to jump in a kind of vulgar contemporary way, that it's seen as something peculiar and distinct and unique and only happening then. And, um, and therefore, an sort exception. of in some ways, an exceptional. Yeah, exactly. I want to get to some of the stories, but I'll ask you quickly yeah. about the title of this book, Belonging. Right. Is there any irony in the title? No, not intentional at all, really. Um, I, I, I think, you know, the whole project was started before the kind of poisoned tidal wave of anti-Semitism okay. started to wash across. No, I mean, it, I, you know, I, it, it could indeed be... be um, thought her, but it was certainly not intentionally ironic. It was, it was certainly intentionally, provocatively problematic. I think actually. I mean, that was a, one of the little bits of our earlier discussion. We didn't surprise, surprise, complete. Um, but well, the sort of the sense, the sense in which actually, I, except you know that little mini anecdote about my father, sort of shul on Shabbat and Dickens on Sunday. Um, the sort of, there were certain places, Holland would be another good case, where China is obviously another good case in Kaifeng, um, where to a remarkable degree, um, your situation as a Jew and your self-identification as a Brit or an Australian or, you know, um, someone belonging to classical China was not problematic. So there are stories of success. The story in the Netherlands was only broken by the atrocious horror of the Nazi invasion. So, um, you know, so there are, there, there are ways in which that difficult, challenging exercise in having, um, you know, two, two, two sorts of home nonetheless could work. It always exposed you, you know, you say you have these two sorts of home. Um, in the in the edited version of an anti-Semite, ah, dual allegiance, you know, that presupposes dual allegiance. On RN, you're listening to Soul Search with me, Meredith Lake, and we're eavesdropping on a sold-out session of the Sydney Writers' Festival back in May. Historian Simon Sharma is speaking to Paul Holdengraber about his new book, Belonging, which tells the story of the Jews from the expulsion from Spain in 1492 through to the beginning of the 20th century. There's so many great stories in Belonging, and I, I'll, I'll read three or four names, and you choose one. 
uh, only because time, we, we're fighting time. Yeah. I see that mm. clock and I hate it. Yeah, I know. Should we kick it in? Anybody who wants us to stop on time, please say stop. No, 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 no. we okay, have no, no. to. We have to be okay. good. It's bad, so, for, bad for the Jews okay, if we don't stop. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Um, the issues that go on and on and on and they're sporadically funny. entertaining and we haven't heard a single joke yet. Yes. You uh, know, so. Do you want to tell one quickly? Yeah, I do, but it's, a, it's the most famous one of all. It's the shortest one, so it helps the clock, you know, which is the entirety of Jewish history summed up by the waiter who goes over to Mrs. Cohen eating the same meal forever in the same restaurant and says, is anything all right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um... <laughs> But you're a pushover. Yeah, really. Yeah. So, you know, Moses Mendelssohn, mm -hmm. Jacob Judah Leon, yeah. Daniel Mendoza. Yeah. Can I have two out of the three? Five quick. That sort of reminds me, I know he's not someone one should quote now, but I, I love the line of Woody Allen ending um, <laughs> one of his stand-up comedies, and he said, you know, I'd love to leave you on a positive note. <laughs> Will you take two negatives? Anyway, you, you, no, no. Any, anyway, you, 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 you can have two, but quick. Yeah, quick, but quick. who was it? Who was it? Oh God, who was the philosopher? You're gonna, it's so upsetting now. Um, who sat at the back of and and somebody um, in Oxford, lecturer in Oxford, so it was Ryle or someone like says. So we, we very little is known for sure, but um, we know that two positives. Can never make, uh, uh, never make a it, negative. It, and from the back, Morgan Besser. It was Sydney Morgan Besser. Yes. From the back row came, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> <laughs> it was Sydney Morgan, yeah, it was Sydney Morgan yeah, Besser. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. so um, two. You know, Mrs. Mendelssohn, very famous name, but his is again uh, really the acme of optimism about the possibility of. Uh, there being, again, a non-problematic relationship with high German culture, with Hochdeutsch, in particular the language. So um, he translates the Bible. Um, uh, there are occasional intermediary stages from the Bible into Yiddish, everybody's, but essentially the Bible is translated from Hebrew into Hochdeutsch. And his notion was really, encouraged by his friend, the philosopher Lessing, and many others, was that once actually Jews came fully into self-confident possession of the glories of, of German Enlightenment culture, um, then their lives would be transformed. They would no longer be seen as peculiar, alien, gutturally, um, you know, only in possession of a deformed and vulgarized form of, you know, rubbishy kind of leftover medieval vernacular. Um, and I always think it's just as well, even though his children would have, you know, read Das Judentum in music, because I remember, you know, written by, anonymously by Wagner, subsequently did not become anonymous. One thing Wagner says, just listen to the way those Jews speak German, or listen to them in their synagogue, and it is intrinsically a horrible, stammering, choking, you know, phlegm-heavy kind of orally repellent sound. How could they ever be expected to make music? So Mendelssohn was, fortunately, didn't have to read this or consider this. So his view was that it was entirely possible for Jews to be fully embedded. And of course, in some senses, that came true. Um, you know, Jews then entered the world of theater, music, his grandchildren, of course. Um, but the price for that, paid by you know, brutally by his son, Abraham, who converted and made sure his children were both, you know, were both baptized, 
Um, but they fully entered into the intellectual and professional and scientific life of Germany to an unbelievably glorious stage. One of the most astonishing phenomena um, of the transformation of human cultures is how Jews came out of the, Germ the ghettos of the German world and then were, had this astounding kind of flowering over perhaps you know, just two or three generations. But the host culture, again, was still attacking the upholstery. The very fact of the consummation, the realization of Moses Mendelssohn's notion that you could actually have a full part in the German-speaking world was a sign of a kind of undercover conspiracy to actually take it over. And therefore to be, you know, the more German you were, the more dangerous you became because you could never be truly German. And therefore it's rather like the attack that the Inquisition directed at new Christians. They say they're Christian, but we know they are not part of our blood. So limpieza de sangue, you know, purity of blood became the reason that Jews were carted off onto an auto da fe. So Mendoza, um, to pick our you know, second not negative, really, in a way. Mendoza was a professional boxer. He was the first professional boxer, Sephardi Jew in London, very tough, very clever, um, to call pugilism, bare-knuckle boxing, a science. Um, he was very, very good. Um, and uh, he, he, he published his own memoir, but he also published kind of instructional manuals, both about how to use bare-knuckle boxing to defend yourself on the street, but also how to be you know, a triumph, really, um, uh, in, in the business of boxing. He, he understands, actually, brilliantly, and following him, as was the case in basketball in, in 20th century America, came, um, came British blacks, actually, and indeed, you know, um, uh, who then became very powerful and proficient in boxing, too. But Mendoza understood um, that there was something to be done, spectacularly successful to be done, by presenting himself as a fighting exotic. Reminds me very much of, you know, when Cassius Clay turns into Muhammad Ali. He's an incredible story of self-invention. He remained defiantly and unambiguously Jewish, unlike Felix Mendelssohn. And, but in order to be a kind of exciting exotic, you needed someone unbelievably white to fight. And one of his early mentors, a man called Humphreys, was exactly that person. And Humphreys sort of went for it in, in a big way. And Mendoza had this extraordinary sense that, um, you know, even a culture as bloody-minded and insular as late Hanoverian 18th, early, century, early 19th century Britain um, loved a sense of... Uh, someone who was both of their world and not of their world. And um, it, was a, it was a kind of triumph. Again, it was a way, you know, what it really looks forward to um, are the way in which Jews had opportunity to excel in showbiz. Really, he was as much in showbiz, Dan Mendoza, as he was in sports. And he kind of understood how you got people through the turnstiles. And he understood how to take something which was functionally necessary, self-defense against being mugged, as Jews very often were, helplessly in 18th century London. Um, he understood how you could turn that into a kind of spectacle. And the issue was whether or not you would really own that spectacle. And, you know, typically, as boxers will, there was a 
downhill moment towards the end, too much drink. Um, you know, he went on fighting 20, 30 round slugging matches. Did actually. you ever study, I'm not sure I came across that, Houdini? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, no, I know about Houdini. Yeah, and Houdini yeah, because he, his grandfather was a rabbi, yes, which is right. so interesting. Well, there was a man called Abraham Colony in yeah, the book yeah. who is an escapologist yeah. in the 16th century. Don't you love and that word? <laughs> exactly. What do you do yeah. for a living? I know, I'm an escapologist, yeah. yeah. Well, I think we are, right? Yeah, I mean, Actually, yeah. yeah, pretty much, yeah. If we get yeah, away with it this yeah, afternoon, yeah, yeah, exactly. case proved, yeah. you know, yeah, really. Yeah. For, uh, yeah. Fraudulence. But, but I'm, I, I was always so interested to, to learn about Houdini's background. I remember one moment, it's a pure digression, has nothing to do with anything, but there was my, my older son uh, is a sight of hand magician. And we went to the show at, uh, about Houdini at the Jewish Museum <coughs> in New York. And my, my younger son said, but how did they know that he didn't have anything when they threw him in the Thames? How did they know that he had nothing? And he said, well, actually he did. And he said, how so? You know, he was nearly completely naked. He said, how did he get out of all those chains? He said, at the last moment, he kissed his wife and passed the key. <laughs> and so my younger son said, oh, is that why people kiss? So, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know. That's very um, good. Isn't it? I mean, it, I mean yeah, it truly is that. a digression. It's a sunshine well, of narrative. Ki kissing always does unlock something. Something, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Simon Sharma sharing a laugh with Paul Holdengraber at the Sydney Writers' Festival earlier this year, where they discussed Sharma's recent book on the story of the Jews. You have said that one of your, the models um, for you as a historian is Herodotus. And you have said, like Herodotus, I see myself as a weird Olympian spectator from a certain time. Hmm. Do you really see yourself that way? Um, it's a, it's so, I mean, it was so intriguing to read that. Mm. No. No, um, I, did, I, did, I didn't think so. <laughs> no, I didn't think so at all. But I'll tell you why. Yeah. I, I have absolutely no memory. No, I know. That. No, the, the serious point there is I think yeah. actually a practice of history, as you know very well, Paul, is one where you're, you know, the condition is total immersion, right. really. You have the illusion of, of being distance, part of, of a lost distance, world, yeah, the... and you speak their language, and you dream, and your nightmares are kind of populated by them, and you, if you're, I, my great mentor, Richard Cobb, in Oxford, always talked about the archive of the feet, and you know, no matter how drastically or catastrophically destroyed an ancient landscape or a city may be, you need somehow to be there amidst the, 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 the mortar and the stones. So you need, you need to go for that kind of complete immersion, but that, what that complete immersion does or can do is to turn you into kind of discount romantic, you know, really, saying so, you don't want to be that. No. So the Olympian station, you know, which so, Tolstoyan yeah. position well, from which you okay, but really see the mad, antic, incoherent scuttle and swarm of humanity is a position you have to take up as well. It's funny you should mention Tolstoyan because I also know that among the things you do quite often is reread War and Peace. I do, yes. Why? 
Why not? I mean, no, 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 no. What else is going to do? See Game of Thrones over and over and again, you know. But does Um, it? Does I I remember having a. All of life is there, as you well know. Yeah, I do. But does it help? Does it help the profession of a historian to read? No, it helps the profession of being a decent human Human being. being. Mm. Perhaps. I mean, you know, culture hasn't helped us. Well, Tokyo. Yeah, but also it says, you know, Pierre's journey, which is ultimately. You know, ends rather magnificently in kind of incompetent shopping in the epilogue. You know, I love that in the epilogue of War and Peace, not getting the presents right for Natasha and them having a kind of grumpy marriage, which is nonetheless deeply saturated in mutual love. Um, Tolstoy's sense, actually, of you know, the, the point of life is the living of it every day and actually trying not to do harm to others as you do so, um, is um, you know, biblical in its redemptive force. I think really. Was he, was he, you know, a wonderful chap, especially? Almost, I mean, Most certainly not, you know, but... Um, but he wrote... This is not why... Transformationally we, yeah, we, wonderful work, But we don't you know. read people for how... Wonderful that. No. no. I want to read to you a quotation and have you react to it. It's um, <coughs> from his last book, from Amos Oz's last book, uh, oh. Dear Zealots. He says this, as the questions grow harder and more complicated, people yearn for simpler answers, one sentence answers, answers that point unhesitatingly to a culprit who can be blamed for all of our suffering, answers that promise that if only we eradicate the villains, all of our troubles will vanish. It's all because of globalization, it's all because of the Muslims, it's all because of permissiveness or because of the West or because of Zionism or because of the immigrants or because of secularism or because of the left wing. All one needs to do is cross out the incorrect entries, circle the right Satan, then kill that Satan along with his neighbors and anyone who happens to be in the area, thereby opening the gates of heaven once and for all. More and more commonly, the strongest public sentiment is one of profound loathing, submersive, subversive loathing of the hegemonic discourse. Western loathing of the East, Eastern loathing of the West, secular loathing of the believers, religious loathing of the secular, sweeping unmitigated loathing surges like vomit from the depths of this or that misery. Such extreme loathing is a component of fanaticism in all its mm. guises. Right. Well, Amos is, of course, um, terrifyingly right. And uh, all one, you know, we are, we are still awash in this horrifying predicament. What has happened, are, above all, is the kind of weaponization of paranoia um, and the 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 success with which I mean more interesting in a way than the inevitable example of Donald Trump or Stephen Bannon is someone we were talking about briefly I was talking about with Angel Pfeffer is is uh, Victor Orban in that Victor Orban was you know um, he, his whole story was made possible by George Soros um, Victor Orban was at Oxford he was part of that liberal wave of at the end of communism but Victor Orban cynically 
Um, maybe he even believes the kind of paranoid gibberish, which is the basis of, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the reason why the image of George Soros then became a kind of you know, something straight out of the playbook of 19th-century anti-Semitism became a standard part of his political modus operandi because he discovered exactly that kind of you know witch's brew that Amathos describes uh, produces results, and what we have now is really. Um, you know, an absolutely ferocious battle to try and make that less potent. The problem, one of the problems that we're up against, really, in, in trying to resist that is um, the dominance of a, a culture of the short shelf life, of the flickering attention span. Um, we are in a Snapchat world where the image you're watching is designed to disappear in 10 seconds. You know the line A little bit more in Instagram. And in order, in order to respect the authority of the complicated requires time. You it requires this terrible thing, study. It requires the President of the United States to read something. You know, the wonderful line of, of T.S. Eliot, a strange person to bring up here, but nevertheless, he said, we, we're distracted from distraction by distraction. And then yeah. Benjamin has that wonderful line that man no longer works at what cannot be abbreviated. Yes. Again, at the opposite pole of actually studying something in its complexity, you know, climate science, whatever it is, is gut feeling. You know, we are actually, what's happened is, again, the mobilization of the sovereignty of uh, sensation, of spectacle, sensation, prejudice, visceral emoting, really. So it's like, you know, we're drowning in melodrama. It will kill us. I can't leave us here without asking you now. Um, the third volume. Yeah. 1900 to 2025, yeah, or something much. like that. Yeah, um, yes. you couldn't, you know, that the, any any notional endpoint, uh, even if one wished a more optimistic, you know, scenario unfolding, would be disgraceful. Really, I mean, actually, the problems, you know, for example, the revi the revival, you know, of, of, of zombie monstrosity of anti-Semitism in Britain or in America or in France, you know, I mean, one has to grapple with that. Name the country. Really. Um, yeah, name, uh, the country. name the country. But uh, yes, but but um, let me ask you just one question about it, which is, which chapter do you think, or which period do you think you're dreading writing the most? Oh, when our people in, in, you know, the words of Dov Kulka were turned into soot and smoke. I remember Shaul Friedlander saying that uh, writing about the Holocaust is something, though he lived it so closely, only generations three or four times yeah. removed. Could do, do you know, my dear Paul, I, I really don't know the answer to that. I mean, yeah. I, I say that in truth, not as a kind of piece of fudging, actually. I mean, in this little book of essays that I've just published, yeah. I, I'm rather fierce about that challenge and the, particularly the it's fiction, so, yeah. that, well, the fiction that's published um, that engages with the Holocaust seems to be just a degree of meretriciousness for the most part, you know. Not H.G. Adler or others, but, but most recent fiction. So I just don't know the answer to your question. I, so I, can neither, I can neither be, uh, you know, I, can, I, I must not overwrite, but I cannot be pretentiously laconic either. 
Carlo Ginzburg once said something to me that I, I thought was extraordinary, and I'll read it exactly. He was asked um, in Colombia, what is a country you belong to? What is, what is your country? And he said, the country I belong to is a country I can be ashamed of. Boy, that is so Jewish, isn't it? But it's not my kind. That is not my kind. I, you know, I feel my, my country is humanity. My country is the Sydney Righteous Festival. How's that? Simon Sharma, the award-winning historian and author whose many books include The Story of the Jews. Volume 1 is called Finding the Words, and the second is Belonging. And as you heard, there's a third still to come, bringing the story into the 21st century. Simon Sharma was speaking to Paul Holdengraber at the Sydney Writers' Festival. And if you missed the beginning of that conversation, you can catch up on the Soul Search website or by subscribing to the podcast with the ABC Listen app. I'm Meredith Lake, and joining me next time on the show, fast bowler Henry Alonga, the first man of colour to play test cricket for Zimbabwe. And that's not just because the ashes are on, and because you can never have too much cricket, if you ask me. Henry stood up to a dictator, mounting an on-field protest at the World Cup of 2003 against the then-president of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe. An act of Christian conscience that made headlines around the world proved very costly. Over a number of years, I'd begun to become aware of a lot of the human rights violations that had happened in Zimbabwe. Dating back to the early 80s, in my province, Matabeleland, there were cases of people disappearing, people being murdered and tortured, etc. And they estimate between 20 to 30 to maybe even up to 100,000 people were killed in that time while the government was trying to clamp down on some dissidents that were working in the region. And so that got me wondering what kind of government we had that would do such things. The further I went into it, the more I became convinced that Robert Mugabe was a dictator. And it took a bit more prying and talking to various people, one of them being Andrew Flower himself. We, we decided, just between the two of us, blonde wearing black armbands, it sure was a tough call, but, but that, that, I guess, is where my deep convictions came in. And so I got dropped from the side initially. I also got booed quite a lot by my own fellow countrymen who disagreed with my stance. It, it became very clear that I, I was not wanted. I was persona non grata. Former Test cricketer Henry Alonga on Faith and Conscience, next time on Soul Search, so make sure you tune in. For now, thanks to Mariam Shahab for putting the show together this week. I'm Meredith Lake, signing off with Soul Search on your home of ideas, RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.